uh, our podcast listeners can't see your hat, but I want your hat bad, man. Tell me, tell us everyone what hat you're wearing right now. Um, so my brother gave this to me for Christmas. He said he saw it and he just had to get it for me. Um, it has the iconic uh, sort of national forest sign shape and the um, brown and, and sort of white uh, text and, and colors. And it says, may the forest be with you. Um, little play on uh, on on uh, Star Wars, so it kind of it, it tickled my my fancy for a couple of reasons. I like Star Wars a lot, and uh, obviously, I'm a big fan of National Forest. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie, and I'm Jeremy, and we are the authors of Where Should We Camp Next? And Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. This season, we are back with a brand new RV and brand new adventures. Join us now as we cover the best campgrounds, the best rigs, the best food, and the best gear to bring with you when you go. So pull up a chair and join us around the digital campfire. This is the RV Atlas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the RV Atlas. Today, I'm thrilled to have back on the show Greg M. Peters. He's the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. Now, Greg was on the RV Atlas podcast last summer, and he shared his favorite national forests by region, just to get people started, get people inspired to start looking into camping and recreating in our national forests. I knew I wanted to have Greg back on this summer, and I knew I wanted to do another National Forest topic with him, and he actually suggested talking about fall camping in our National Forest, which is perfect because we're in mid-August. Sadly, summer is going to come to an end at some point. I'm not letting go just yet, but it is going to come to an end, and uh, we're all going to be turning towards those fall camping trips. So Greg is going to give us, again, an overview of National Forest camping. Uh, in terms of dispersed camping and actual camping at National Forest campgrounds, he's going to talk quite a lot about being prepared and, as he says, stepping up your game for camping on, on our National Forest land. Then he's going to also talk about why fall is maybe the best time to do so and to get out there uh, in our National Forest land. And Greg is one of a, a handful of authors that I have loved having on the show, and I try to have them on every summer, once a year. And when we have these authors on and they give us these terrific, uh, inspirational and informative episodes, I want to ask you, our RV Atlas family, to please consider buying their books. It helps these authors immensely. I know that from personal experience. The content you're getting is basically ripped from their books and from their research over the years. And buying their books is a vote of confidence in the work that they do. And the work that Greg is doing on our national forests is very, very important. So please consider buying. Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. We're going to come back in a second for a truly terrific episode with Greg. And this is an important episode if you want to camp on National Forest land, because quite frankly, a lot of RV owners are doing so and they are not prepared to do so. This episode is going to help you get prepared to have a really fun, really successful National Forest camping trip, whether that's on you know dispersed camping in our National Forests, or at a more traditional campground. We're going to talk about both with a, in a second with my friend, Greg M. Peters. Uh, but before we do so, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Camco. 
Camco is one of our favorite companies in the outdoor recreation industry. For more than 50 years, they have remained a trusted North Carolina-based manufacturer specializing in innovative products for the RV, marine, outdoor living, and outdoor recreation markets. You may know them best by their American-made Rhino sewer hoses, Taste Pure water filters, EvoFlex drinking water hoses, and TST toilet chemicals. But their lineup of products doesn't end there. Camco continues to deliver products that bridge the gap between you and your next adventure. From portable grills and campfires to ease lift hitches and power grip electrical adapters, they seem to be doing it all. There's a saying that if you own an RV, you are sure to own a Camco product or two, and it's true. This spring, we are stocking up our brand new RV with go-to Camco products like their collapsible laundry basket and their life is better at the campsite dishes and mugs. Head on over to CampcoOutdoors.com to check out all of the cool stuff that Camco makes and get 10% off your entire order with our discount code RVAtlas10. That's CampcoOutdoors.com and use discount code RVAtlas10 for 10% off your entire order today. Hello, Greg, and welcome back to the RV Atlas. It's been a year. I'm excited to have you back on the show. I'm I'm such a big fan of your books, uh, but you've had a while, a bit of a wild and crazy year. We've been going back and forth a little bit trying to get you on the show. What have you been up to since last summer when you were on the show? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be with you. I really appreciate the opportunity to come back in and, and chat with you some more. Um, yeah, so I was looking back at the notes, and I think I was on in July-ish of last year. And um, about a month after that, in kind of mid-August, my wife and I packed up our truck and our camper. We have a little um, R-Pod, a uh, little 18-foot R-Pod, and we headed east from uh, Missoula, Montana, where we were living, to uh, to the East Coast, basically. Spent a couple months in Maine and then worked our way down um, the eastern seaboard and then came back across through Louisiana and Texas and New Mexico and Arizona um, and got back to Missoula in January um, and we're living in the in the camper pretty much that whole time um, it was a blast we had a great experience it was really cool we learned a lot about kind of living on the road and living in the camper and and how all that works um, got back to Missoula like I said in mid-January um, spent another few months there. And then, um, about three, four weeks ago, we've actually packed up all of our stuff. We sold our house in Missoula and decided to move to Maine. So we once again, packed up the truck, once again, hooked up the, our pod and, uh, drove across the country to Maine, um, and, and hit up a national forest campground on the way, which I'll talk a little bit about later on in the interview. Um, and then right now we're actually still living in the camper at a private campground here in Maine. Um, we're at this one for another few days and then we roll to, uh, another one for two weeks. That'll take us through the end of August. Um, and hopefully, uh, by then we'll be well on our way to finding a house and, and figuring out where we're going to land here. So it's been exciting. It's been a lot. Um, and we've been getting a lot of time in the camper, which has been pretty fun. Well, you're getting your money's worth out of that RV. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so, are. it's so cool how like an RV can be a, a home when you're moving or like when you're in between situations, you know, like we lived in our Jayco Eagle for 56 nights while, while our house was being renovated. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it was worth buying this RV, right? I mean, it is literally my support system, my second home. Uh, and you were so ambitious. You were like, oh, I think we could do the interview like while I'm on the road, while I'm moving, <laughs> like maybe I could like record in the car. And I'm like, I'm like, Greg, I, Stephanie and I moved once like, we moved six times in six years. 
And I'm wow. thinking, yeah, I don't know if he's going to be able to pull that off. That sounds a little crazy. Um, but I'm, I'm so glad we've got you. Congratulations on the move to Maine. I mean, you're going from one amazing outdoor state to another amazing outdoor state. So wishing you and your family all the best in the transition. And I know it's not easy, like house shopping and this environment and all that stuff. So wishing you the best. I was tempted to have you come on about your road trip. But then I was like, no, this guy's like a national forest expert. We're going to talk. <laughs> we're going to talk national forests again because this is this is my chance to get a great national forest episode. So last year you talked about like your favorite national forests in each region. And you kind of give everyone like an introduction and overview to just where these places are and just inspiring everybody to, to kind of dig in and see what's nearby. Um, this time, though, we want to talk about you, you giving us some great tips for doing like a national forests trip in the fall, because fall is, is rapidly approaching. Uh, and so it's, it's a great time to do a national forest camping trip. So let's let's dive right in there. Sort of give us an, an overview of the national forests again, you know, why we want to check them out. And then we'll head into some kind of specific tips for the fall. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks. Um, so. You know, national forests are one set of public lands, um, similar like national parks, similar to lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management. Um, they're federal lands, so they're own, they're sort of owned by all of us. All Americans, um, you know, have an opportunity to enjoy these lands, to camp on these lands, etc. Um, and I think that's really important. I think um, you know, public lands can be. Uh, kind of abused, but they can also be beloved. And and I think national forests, you'll see a little bit of, of both of those going on. Um, I'm obviously a lover of national forests, um, but um, they do, I think, require kind of a, a little bit of knowledge. And, and I don't want to say stepping up your camping game, but I, I don't think these are great places for necessarily novices who've never really been camping or, or done much camping to head out for a week-long vacation on a national forest. I think there might be some challenges, and we can talk about what those are. So appreciate the I opportunity read you, to come I read on. your notes. I read <laughs> your notes, at, like, last night. And I, that was the, literally the first thought that came to mind was, like, I mean, this this does require a little work. You got you got to kind of get you know tapped into this. Uh, maybe not the best thing for a first time RVer, but but with your help here, I think we can get everybody inspired and motivated to to get into it and to you know to understand what they need to know to have a successful national forest trip. So yeah, we're so on the same page with that. Awesome. Uh, and, and I'm glad you said successful because that's really I think what what I'm trying to convey here, and and I appreciate the opportunity to do that. I mean. I think anyone could go out and survive, you know, a few days of camping on the national forest. Are you going to have fun? Hopefully. Might you not have as much fun? Yeah, that there's a potential for that. If your expectations aren't quite aligned and you don't have, you didn't do some of that sort of pre-planning and research that we'll talk about here a little bit. Not trying to throw, you know, cold water on anybody or say, you know, you shouldn't head out and, and, and cut your teeth. Um, just do some homework and be prepared and have the right expectations for what you're going to find when you get out there. Um, so anyway, we'll get into some more of that. As part of that overview, there are national forests in, in I think, all but seven. Um, I think it's actually 10 states uh, in, in the in the country. So they're, they're everywhere. And um, one of the stats that we used to use when I worked at the National Forest Foundation um, was, I think, seven in 10 Americans live, I think it was uh, 100 miles from a national forest. Um, whether or not that has a, a campground on it, maybe is, is arguable, but 
regardless, these are pretty accessible lands to, you know, uh, 70% of the American population, whether you're in the East Coast, whether you're certainly in the West. Um, and so I do think they, they just provide an incredible opportunity for all of us and, and are a wonderful, amazing asset to this country. Um, obviously, with such sort of geographic diversity, you get a lot of diversity in the topography, in the climate, in the uh, type of campground that you're going to be at. And so I think that's really important to recognize as well. Um, if you're changing latitudes, if you're going from, you know, Maine down to North Carolina or something like that and, and hitting a national forest there, for example, it's going to be very different weather, very different climate, very different animals that you're going to encounter. So, you know, again, I just think these are things that people need to uh, keep in mind and, and, and think through and do a little bit of research on, especially when you're kind of thinking of, of a vacation and not just a quick one night, you know, stopover on a, on a trip. But if you're trying to spend a week or spend a long weekend in a spot, um, you're going to want to go in there armed with some knowledge about what you're able to do and, and how that's going to work. And it's a vast system of of camping, of both dispersed camping and actual campgrounds. And they're not all uniform in terms of how they work, like by any stretch of the imagination. And just to put that in perspective, like there's just over 500 KOA campgrounds in America. There's over 5,000 national forest campgrounds. It is, it's almost a little overwhelming to think about. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great point. And and those are just the more formal developed campgrounds. You you mentioned dispersed camping, Jeremy, and a lot of folks sort of wonder what dispersed camping is or it might be a term that they're not as familiar with. I would assume your audience is probably a little bit more familiar with it, but boondocking, dry camping, these are other words that that people use in in the national forest context. It's typically called dispersed camping. That's what the forest service calls it. And that's where you're camping somewhere where there isn't a campground at all. You're just kind of finding a spot on the national forest where camping is allowed um, and you know where it's big enough for you to get your RV in or, or if you happen to be tenting, I know this is an RV podcast, but there's a lot of dispersed camping opportunities that are RV friendly um, and you're just staying there. And you know, you have that 14 day limit that you have, you know, if you were at a formal campground, but they're free, um, they're often, you know, beautiful. Um, they're often pretty remote and they're a little farther away. Um, they're also often enjoyed, I think, a lot um, by locals. And I think that's something that maybe some of us who come into these places as a visitor maybe need to, to be a little bit respectful of and at least be mindful of that, you know, People who live in in areas around national forests live there probably in large part because they like doing the same things that we like to do. And they know those areas really well. And so they may want to uh, take advantage of some of those dispersed camping opportunities. And it can be pretty frustrating if uh, all of those are taken up by, you know, out-of-staters and that kind of thing. So I do think, um, if, especially if you're new to an area, um, maybe dispersed camping isn't the best thing for you to do right out the gate, maybe get a couple of nights at a campground and then kind of get the lay of the land. But we can kind of get into some more of those specifics in a little bit. I, I think the point you made, and I think the point I want to echo is these landscapes are diverse. These campgrounds are diverse. They're not all going to have the same amenities. Um, they're not all going to have the same price point. It, it's not like a KOA where you show up and you expect, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, and that's kind of how it's going to be at every KOA that you go to. That can be, be exciting quite, and that can be challenging. You, you, oh, there's so many great points packed into to what you just said. And uh, over nine years of podcasting, I have uh, to an RV audience, I have had a lot of hesitation 
about recommending dispersed camping to a general audience because I don't want to send somebody out into uh, an environment or into an experience that they're not prepared for. Quite frankly, I think there's a lot of people in the industry broadly that like to, to do that, that market, oh, buy an RV and go off-road, go off-grid to, to an audience of people that really aren't prepared. It takes some expertise. Local knowledge is such a great point. I mean, people fly across the country or drive across the country to go to Yellowstone or go to Glacier not so much to go to a national forest. And that's a key point is that they are often enjoyed by people that live around them. So all great points. But what, what, what if we are going, and I, I want my audience though, like you said, we don't want to pour cold water on the issue. We just want them no. to be prepared. So like, what can you expect if you get to a national forest campground, uh, as opposed to, you know, you're allowed to do dispersed camping, but what about the actual campgrounds? Sure. Um, it- <laughs> so even answering that, I think, re- requires a little bit of, of uh, you know, detail. It's hard to know what to expect when you are, you know, in, unless you do a little bit of research. And, and I've jotted down some research or some resources in the notes that we can get into here at the end. Obviously, the U.S. Forest Service um, provides a lot of resources. And, and even in the last year, since I was on the website or on your podcast, excuse me, um, their website has gotten better and they're doing, I think they're, they're, they're improving the ability for people to learn about the specifics of a particular campground, what, what it looks like, what it's allowed. That being said, I think you need to kind of also double down a little bit on some of that research and not just go to one site and say, oh, the forest service says X, Y, Z, I can expect that at this particular campground. Um, so you can expect everything from running water, showers, you know, uh, paved campground, you know, paved parking pads, electricity, um, to a pit toilet, to no toilet at all, and no drinking water at all. So it can really run the gamut. Um, we stayed at a national forest in Nebraska, um, near Halsey, Nebraska, on our way over. It's a really interesting area. It's the site of the second largest hand-planted forest in the country. Um, it got started back in the early 1900s when a botany professor at University of Nebraska thought that the Great Plains had once been treed, and he thought he could plant trees there. Um, I actually talk about this in the book a little bit. Um, and that his desire to do that, his access to Theodore Roosevelt, who was president at the time, um, ended up creating this pretty unique area in Nebraska that's got a 20,000 acre hand planted forest um, that had running water. It had showers. It had uh, electricity. It was one of the nicer national forest campgrounds I've ever been to. Um, back in Montana, most of the national forest campgrounds that we, we would go to would have a pit toilet. And that's probably about it in terms of amenities. So it really does depend. Um, I think the closer you are to uh, a busier, you know, more urban center campgrounds outside of Denver, campgrounds in California, for example, they might have some more of those amenities that you would expect from a private campground or, or a national park campground. But I think generally speaking, when folks want to go to a national forest campground, they shouldn't expect there to be a lot of amenities. Um, and that can be a great thing, I think. Um, it can also be a little bit challenging. Yeah, it's it, a lot of people love that, right? But uh, the fewer amenities they have, the more your RV needs to be properly equipped or you need to be properly prepared. 
So it's like a, a, a process of building up to it to some degree. And then, of course, yeah. some of them are reservable and some of them are not reservable, which is, you know, varies campground to campground. And then also, it seems to me that a lot of national forest campgrounds sometimes have eight sites or, or 12 sites, you know, yes. very much different than some of the huge national park campgrounds that might have 100 sites and are really trying to, you know, cater to, to tourists coming into the area. Uh, okay, great. So yeah, anything, please add anything or just tell us a little bit maybe about dispersed camping regulations and rules since we talked about campgrounds. Sure, sure. So I, one thing that I think that's really important for folks to sort of understand about national forests is they're, they're very decentralized. The management of them comes down to the, the local rangers on that forest, the district rangers, the local forest supervisors. So um, the rules and regulations around dispersed camping or even around what's allowed in a particular campground are going to vary considerably. There isn't a lot of consistency across the board. There's, you know, there is some, there's the 14 day limit, you know, dogs need to be on a leash. Um, you know, you're not supposed to drive you know, your RVs all over the campground, or excuse me, your uh, ATVs all over the campground, um, you know, those types of things are fairly consistent. However, um, the dispersed camping in particular um, does vary. And so it's really important if that's what you want to do to check in either on the local forest's website, every national forest has its own website that has rules and regulations. It also has alerts on it. So if a particular road, for example, that gives you access to some of those dispersed camping opportunities, it may be closed for a natural disaster. There might have been a flood. There might be a timber harvest going on. Um, there might be some mining that's happening. And these are things that are allowed on national forests. And I didn't mention that in the overview, but national forests are used for a lot more than just camping. Um, they're used for a lot of natural resource development as well. And so that's also something to be aware of. Um, and you can find all that information on those sites. And just call those those local district offices. Those folks are always happy to talk to you. I do that a lot, um, and that can be really really helpful. And um, they're gonna they're gonna set you straight and and get you the right expectations. So you go in prepared and ready for success. Such a key point. There are phone numbers to call for the local field stations, and they will tell you what is the road like into the campground. <laughs> can I get my 25 foot RV in? Should I right. not try all those little things? And it's kind of maddening and frustrating. I think to a beginner that it's different everywhere you go, right. but it's for an obvious reason because the landscape is different everywhere you go. It's <laughs> exactly. not a holiday in. There might be a river or a mountain or a stream, or this is closed because of flooding, or there was a rock slide here. Or, I mean, there's just a million different reasons where the environment really helps them create the rules. It's not the other way around. They, the National Forest Service can't come in with this preconceived list of all these rules. They have to look at like, what is the landscape like? So it all, it's all logical, really, I think at the end of the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But um, it does require some pre-planning and a little bit of research. And, you know, yes, they all have phone numbers. They all have offices. It's still the federal government. Those offices are open probably from nine to four, they may be off for lunch from 12 to one, you know, they're not going to be working on federal holidays. You can't roll in there on a Sunday or pick up the phone on a Sunday because you're leaving on a Monday and expect somebody to be answering. So you do have to kind of play within the bounds of the federal government, which, you know, we can complain about, we can laud, however, I don't really want to go there. But the point is you, you got to kind of be 
um, aware that this is not a private entity that is, you know, around 24-7 with customer service. This is the federal government. These employees work pretty hard. Um, they're willing to help you, but you kind of got to meet them on their terms a little bit, at least in terms of, of their office hours and those kinds of things. And the camping's either free or it's like $12 a Pretty night cheap. too. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're yeah. not oper they're not operating for profit, right? So that's a key, another key point. Like, don't go in with the expectations for customer service that you would <laughs> expect if you're paying a hundred bucks a night for like a KOA. Like, and people do that. That's the thing. Right. You know, I see this in my Facebook group all the time is like people complaining about like customer service at a national park or national forest campground. And it's like, these rangers are doing, they got 50 other things that are part of their jobs besides, you know, checking you in or whatever. Yeah. You know, I have a local County park and I call all the time to reserve sites. And like most of the time, no one answers. Like literally I'm leaving messages because, and I, I know what it is. There's one ranger on duty and he's off dealing with some problem. Right. Uh, so yeah, having those, having your expectations match the situation you're going to get into, uh, super, super important. Yeah, exactly. And I, I would add, you know, I think a, a lot of these campgrounds, particularly the bigger ones, and as you gain a little more experience camping on national forests, you're going to be able to kind of figure this out a little bit faster. But the bigger ones during the summer season will have probably camp hosts, but those folks are volunteers. They're there. I mean, they're probably getting a free place to stay for the summer, but they're cleaning bathrooms. They're cleaning the trash that careless people put in the campfire that doesn't get burned. You know, they're, uh, you know, dealing with, with the wind and the, you know, the blowdowns and the, you know, water, whatever's happening, you know, from a, a climate or weather perspective. And they're doing that as volunteers. So it can be easy to roll in there and gripe that the, oh, we had a funny, uh, well, not a funny experience, but I'll share this anecdote. We got to a campground in Idaho a uh, really popular campground not too far from Montana. We roll in and the camp the campfire um has a bunch of trash in it. And you know, we're kind of griping, you know, oh, where's the camp host? This is gross, you know, and we're also griping about the people who would leave trash in a campfire ring, which I think is, you know, not not obviously not not something you want to do. Well, it turns out the camp host was like 90 years old and literally died because it was so hot. She was trying to do the work and her husband was, you know, gone in mourning because she had died. So you never know what, you know, what you might walk into in some of these spots. And, you know, that's a, a sad story, but I, I, it's worth sharing, I think, because, you know, these folks are doing this because they want to. They're not doing it because they're, they're making big bucks or anything like that. Well, so have, just, some, have some grace for, for Yeah, exactly. People, and, and some right? patience. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And. You know, if you're going for a high customer service, high touch experience, you want a, a swimming pool and, and showers, National Forest Campground's probably not a good spot for you to go, quite frankly. You know, right. so, so, you know, maybe not not the best spot for you to head off to. Um, and know your camping style. You know, Stephanie yeah, and I yeah. have said that for years. And, you know, like we love everything, you know, which is uh, sure. I like that about myself is that I, I'll go to Jellystone and have fun or I'll go to a National Forest and have fun. Yeah. Uh, is there any, any other key points you wanted to make in terms of an overview before we take a quick commercial break and then talk a bit more specifically about fall camping in National Forests? Um, yeah, a couple, and I'll try to keep these brief for you. I, you know, I think in addition to learning sort of what the campground itself is like, learn a little bit more about where it is. So if you're going up in elevation and you're not used to going up in elevation because of where you live or where you're, you typically camp, it's probably going to be colder up there than it is, you know, down at lower elevations. Um, it could be windier. Um, you know, 
learn a little bit about how far off the main road system that particular campground that you want to go to is. It might be 25 miles up a dirt road. And 25 miles up a dirt road with an RV is very, very different than 25 miles on a paved road with an RV. Um, and so you just, again, you got to kind of do your homework to make sure you're setting the right expectations and therefore able to capitalize and have the most fun that you can have. You know, nothing worse than pulling off the highway after you've driven two hours thinking, all right, we got 25 miles to go. And then realizing that 25 miles is going to take you an hour and a half because it's on a rough dirt road and you're going to be stressed and you're tired and you're hungry and it's starting to get dark. And you're like, what did, why did we come all the way out here? So again, do that research. It might prove to be the coolest camping you know, spot you've ever had. And it's an awesome experience. But if you know what it's going to be like when you're headed there, you're going to have a lot more fun and you're going to, you're going to you know, be ready to roll. And pay particular attention to the size of your RV and what is recommended. There, there should be information on the, that particular National Forest Service campground site or call and ask. Don't yes. get into a situation where you're trying to get a 40-foot fifth wheel into a place where that 40-foot fifth wheel has no business being. And I think in a general sense, National Forest Camping is going to favor smaller RVs. But of course, it, it is totally going to vary from place to place. There are places that are going to be easy to get into in the big rigs. So we are going to come back in a second with more from Greg. We're going to talk specifically about fall camping uh, in national forests. But before we do so, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Blackstone. The sound of bacon or burgers and steaks sizzling is the sound that you crave this summer. Blackstone is the original flat top griddle with more than 9 million griddles sold. Blackstone is the way that America cooks in the great outdoors. You can cook everything you can on a traditional grill and a thousand things you can't. Want an incredible breakfast? How about lunch or dinner? The solid steel flat top infuses the flavors. Pick the size and style that's right for your next camping trip. The 17-inch and 22-inch griddles are easy to store in your RV and still have the space to feed the hungriest army. There's even a portable Blackstone with an air fryer built in. Talk about variety. With Blackstone, you can cook anything, anytime, anywhere. They even make a portable pizza oven that you can bring camping. For outdoor cooking fun and flavor that you can't find anywhere else, go wherever griddles are sold or head on over to blackstoneproducts.com. And remember, if it's not a Blackstone, it's not a griddle. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We are here with Greg M. Peters. He's the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. It's a terrific book. Anybody interested in camping and national forests and the great outdoors should have this book. It's a beautiful it works as a coffee table book. It's a very attractive book, but also incredibly readable. Um, so thank you for writing that wonderful book. Now let's dive in and talk specifically fall camping. Like, So why is fall a good time to maybe do your first national forest camping trip or, or, or to plan something for September, October, or whatever it might be? Yeah, I, I love camping in the fall. It's hands down one of my favorite seasons to get out. Um, there's far fewer bugs, which I think is a huge uh, plus. Um, there's usually fewer people. Kids are back in school. So if you have the luxury of being able to get out during a weekday um, or during the week, the week uh, 
Uh, it's an amazing time to be out. Um, also, you know, even though kids are available on weekends, there's sports and stuff. So I, I think, you know, fewer crowds, it's a little easier to get into these sites. We had mentioned uh, earlier that there are reservable and non-reservable national forest campgrounds. Um, and even within a campground, there's reservable and non-reservable sites. All that's done through recreation.gov, similar to any other kind of federally managed uh, land where you're going to camp. Um and so, you know, in the fall, you can definitely get in there and get those reservations, I think, a lot more easily than you can uh, during the, you know, the peak of the summer. Um, with that, you know, change in, in, in weather um, with, with the cool temps and, and all that kind of stuff, you're also going to need to be, you know, a little bit more prepared. You're going to want to level up a little bit on heading out. Um, and I think when you couple that shoulder season and, and the potential for, you know, a rainstorm or, or a cool, you know, cooler nights, um, and you couple that with the national forest campgrounds that are maybe a little more remote than what you might be used to, maybe a little farther off grid, maybe don't have the amenities. I think you really got to kind of step your game up a little bit. Um, and, you know, I kind of uh, like to kind of run through the, the charge up, fuel up, pump up, cool up and gear up. And I, and I went through those kind of fast, but, you know, top off your batteries, make sure your batteries are charged up because you're probably not going to have electricity. Make sure your propane tank is topped off. You've been camping all summer. You're probably have used all that gear, I hope, you know, pretty hard. So make sure that you're, you know, doing that kind of stuff. Make sure your tires are in good shape. Make sure you got a spare tire. Uh, and that it is in good shape because you might end up needing it. Um, you know, make sure you got a tire iron, you know, all those things, particularly as the summer goes on, you know, you might grab a, a tool that you need or typically keep in your RV and use on the house or vice versa. It's a real good time if you head out in the fall and particularly on a national forest to just kind of go through that checklist and make sure you have all that stuff that you're, you're topped off and ready to roll so that you don't put yourself in a position uh, you know, where things start to get unsafe or, you know, at best uncomfortable. I'm, I'm picturing how our, a lot of our listeners are, are hearing what you're saying and how they're responding in their minds. And I think that, you know, some of our listeners are going, oh, this sounds a little overwhelming. You know, I'm going to stick with, you know, like mom, the mom and pop family campground where, you know, if I get a flat tire, they're going to come out and help me. And but then I know that there are other listeners out there like, yeah, this is what I want, man. I want right. to make sure those batteries are topped off. I want to make sure I got enough water like that. The adventure is part of it. And the fact that it's more challenging is part of it, you know those RVers that lean a little more towards like a overlanding type of person or somebody that's got more of that like backpacking and tent camping in their background. So there's all different types of people. Um, and the national forests are not for, for everyone in that sense, but there, I, I think that, uh, for a lot of our listeners, this is an amazing way to get out and experience nature and, and to do some awesome camping. And I think that some, I mean, at least some of these national forest campgrounds are probably pretty easy and probably pretty oh, yeah. simple to navigate, you know, just, just figure out which, which is which. Yeah. The, that one in Nebraska, I mean, anyone could, that we stayed out on, on the drive over that I mentioned, anybody could have stayed there. I mean, it was paved, there were, you know, showers, like there was electricity, you know, 30 uh, amp, you know, electricity poles, like it was slick. Now, I stayed in one out um, in Washington State. Uh, we went to North Cascades National Park, um, and it was kind of a spur-the-moment spur trip. This was in June, 
um, we got weekday reservations at the campground in the park, but I couldn't get any for the weekend. So I cast my net a little wider. And this is, a, I think, one thing that I didn't mention in the overview, and, and I know we're kind of drifting from fall here, but a lot of national parks are surrounded or at least bordered by national forests. And so if you're, and you mentioned Yellowstone, um, and maybe you mentioned Glacier, both of those are surrounded effectively by national forests. So if you can't get that campsite in the national park, you might be able to get one in a national forest that's 10, maybe 20 miles away. That was our experience in Washington. We couldn't get a weekend reservation in North Cascades National Park. So we found an awesome little campsite uh, in a campground on the national forest. It said on the website that they accommodated 33-foot RVs. There was no way you were going to get a 33-foot RV in there. I have an 18-foot R-Pod, and I had to jackknife that thing so hard to get it into the parking spot. I took a picture of it so that I would be able to replicate the angle that I came in at when I pulled back out. And I watched a guy with a little pop-up drive around like six times different directions and then joked with him afterwards about how small the sites were. So again, just, you know, <laughs> do, do a little bit of homework. And, and if it's fall and if it's stormy and that's, you know, the scenario that you're facing after a long drive, that can be demoralizing and really frustrating. And, and so I think, you know, just like we're saying, you know, I think if you want to go camping in a, in a more remote national forest campground, you got to level up a little bit. If you want to do that in the fall, you also got to level up a little bit there as well. It's another reason why it favors locals. Yeah. And and if you're listening and you have National Forest land within striking distance, you know, an hour, a couple of hours, if it was me, I would go spend the day there, do a day trip without the RV, um, drive around the campground, yeah. check out the loops. I mean, I've had this experience at state parks where I feel like, man, they said a 30-foot rig could get in here, but I don't think I'd bring my 32-foot grand design, that's for sure, you know? And nothing beats physically scoping out where you're going to camp. Now, that's not obviously not possible if you're driving cross-country to Yellowstone and you're camping in one of these national forests. But if it's a, a more local trip for you, and you said that, what, 7 of 10 Americans or something live near national forest land, Go have a fun day just scoping it out, taking pictures of the sites. Oh, this one looks easy. I can get into this one or this loop is tighter than that loop. Nothing will beat that that knowledge and locals are always going to have an advantage there uh, for sure. So yeah, anything, anything else about fall camping that makes uh, our national forests a particularly lovely option or a fun option? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, you know, I think the things that you likely want to do when you go to a national forest, hiking, paddling, fishing, you know, uh, riding ATVs. Again, there's going to be fewer people doing those things. There's going to be less pressure on the resources. You're going to have more of those trails to yourself. Uh, obviously the fall colors, um, are going to, you know, kind of heighten that experience. I, I think that's going to be, uh, you know, a, a pretty powerful thing for a lot of folks. It certainly is for me. Um, one thing I think is important to remember, and, and this is particularly true, um, you know, if you're traveling or, or, or if you're new to public lands, hunting is allowed on, I think, pretty much every national forest I've ever been on or have ever heard of. And hunting is regulated by the state fish and game or natural resources department. It's not regulated by the federal government. So, and the hunting seasons vary. You know, here in Maine, I think it's like more in November. In Montana, it's more in October. And 
it's incumbent on you to be aware of, of whether or not people are going to be hunting. And it's incumbent on you to bring blaze orange. And, and I remember when I was a kid, I went hiking with some friends and we didn't bring blaze orange, but they had some life jackets in their truck. And so we ended up wearing those silly orange, you know, horseshoe life jackets that, that you'll see because we needed some color when we were out in the woods. And if you have pets, you want to go out with your dog, definitely going to want to get them in some sort of orange so that they don't get accidentally uh, shot by a hunter. Hunters are responsible. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm not down uh, trying to, to, you know, talk down about hunting in any way, shape or form. It's a it's a really important and traditional use of public lands. But you got to be aware that in the fall, that's another element of use that you have to be uh, prepared for. Great. Is fall your favorite time for a national forest camping weekend or camping trip? It is. Um, it is. I, you know, the, the one, I, I lo- like all the things that I just said, fewer bugs, fewer crowds, colors. I love all that. What I don't like about it as much is the shorter daylight hours. And that's something that it's like every time I go and, you know, it's my first sort of fall trip after Labor Day or whatever, and I'm all stoked. And I look at my watch at seven o'clock and, or, you know, at six o'clock and I'm like, man, I only have an hour of light left. I could be in a little pickle here. And so it takes me a time or two to remember that I got to plan appropriately for the daylight hours um, when I, when, when fall comes. Um, but aside from that, um, and, and that brings its own benefits. You get longer time by the campfire, you get better stargazing. Um, you know, it's not just a downside. It's just one more thing that you kind of got to be a little bit aware of. I was surfing with my son, Max, the other night. We were out at eight o'clock and he was like, dad, it's almost dark out already. What's going on? And I was like, the days are getting shorter, man. You know, I know we all fall in love with those long days. We're going to come back in a second and wrap up the show. Greg's going to give us some great resources uh, to plan our own national forest trips. And if there's anything else, Greg, that you really wanted to point out, we can do so. But before we sure. do that, we have sponsored messages from our friends at RV SnapPad and from our friends at Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park Camp Resorts. Meet the world's only permanent jack pad. RV Snap Pads attach permanently to your RV leveling jack so you don't have to carry around blocks of wood or plastic blocks to level your towable or motorized RV. Simply snap them on one at a time and you're all set. RV Snap Pads go on in seconds and provide a lifetime of stability on the road. They are built for wanderers, adventurers, and vacationers just like you. SnapPad also now makes non-permanent leveling accessories for plastic levelers and buckets. They make everything you need to have the best leveling experience possible in your RV. We added RV SnapPads to our travel trailer two years ago and love their durability, design, and functionality. They also make setting up and breaking down camp faster and easier. Finally, SnapPad recently collaborated with Camco Manufacturing to release the most durable, rugged, and stable scissor jack stabilizer available today. Head over to rvsnappad.com and use their Submit Your Rig tool to answer a few quick questions, and they will find you the perfect set of snap pads for your towable or motorized RV. Join the RV SnapPad revolution today. To find out more, visit rvsnappad.com. Our family has been staying at Jellystone Park locations for 12 years. There are more than 75 Jellystone Park locations across the United States and Canada, and each one is unique 
but our kids love them all because each Jellystone Park location has fun attractions like pools, water slides, splash grounds, mini golf, laser tag, and jumping pillows. Plus, there are tons of activities all day and all night long, such as foam parties, dance parties, wagon rides, tie-dye, and movie nights. They even have themed weekends like Chocolate Lovers Weekend, Christmas in July, and Halloween weekends in the fall. Of course, we can't forget the fun of hanging out with Yogi Bear, Boo Boo, and Cindy Bear. And at Jellystone Park, you can stay in your RV or enjoy one of their awesome glamping accommodations as many of their locations offer luxury cabins, yurts, covered wagons, and more. Make Jellystone Park a part of your family's vacation in 2023 because it's not just a campground. It's a Jellystone Park. To learn more and to book your vacation today, visit JellystonePark.com. That's JellystonePark.com. And please, don't forget to tell Yogi Bear that Jeremy and Stephanie said hello. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Greg M. Peters. He's the author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands. I've seen it at REI. You can buy it at Amazon. You can order it at an independent bookstore. If it's not there already, you can get it at bookstores across the country. It's a lovely book. Um, I want all of our RV Atlas podcast listeners to support the authors that come on the show. It's not easy writing books. It's not easy marketing books. It's not easy publishing books. So support the authors that come on and give us these great episodes. Greg, what are some great resources for planning a national forest camping trip in the fall and then anything else that you we may have missed along the way? Sure. Um, so obviously the Forest Service uh, is going to be, you know, definitely the first place to go. Um, and their website is FS dot usda dot gov um, and every forest um, and and grassland every sort of unit uh, they call them of the national forest system um, and we didn't talk about this but there's 175 national forests uh, 20 national grasslands uh, scattered across this country um, every one of those has its own website and in on that website there's going to be where you can camp, the list of the campgrounds, uh, some description of those campgrounds, you know, other recreational opportunities. There's going to be those alerts and those um, closures that I talked about. Um, there's going to be some other information. There's also going to be numbers, telephone numbers for district offices and those types of things. So that is probably the first place that I would go. Um, the national, the fs.usda.gov site also has a, a interactive visitor map that allows you to zoom in, zoom out, and a bunch of little icons pop up about what is available in, in that particular area that you're focused on. And so that can be a really beneficial thing, um, you know, to try to kind of get the lay of the land and be like, okay, I want to go check out this lake. Is there a campground there? Um, that's going to be a really good resource for you to be able to, to, to use. And on each of those sites, those individual forest sites, there's likely going to be um, a downloadable map called the um, motorized, uh, what is it, the MVM, motorized visitor use map, um, that tells you exactly what, what roads you can drive on, what roads you can't drive on. And I know a lot of folks like to um, get out and, and, you know, engage in motorized recreation. And so that's going to be a really important uh, resource for you. Starting, I don't know when, maybe 20 years ago, um, a couple of folks named Fred and Susie Dow started driving around and visiting every National Forest campground that had more than 10 spots. And they put all of their visits and all their information on a website called forestcamping.com. And it's a little dated, um, but 
it is a wealth of information about specific national forest campgrounds. It's exclusive to national forests. Um, they have an ebook as well that you can download so you don't have to have necessarily connectivity, um, which is not something you should expect at most of these sites. You're not going to have good cell service. There's not going to be Wi-Fi. You're off grid. Um, and that you know, kind of ties back into that preparation stuff that we talked about. Download those maps beforehand. Download your camping reservations beforehand so you're not trying to pull up that email from rec.gov when you get to the campground because you're not going to be able to. Um, so forestcamping.com, that's going to be a really great resource for folks as well. Um, National Forest Foundation is a good resource. Um, and then, you know, something that I use a lot um, is Google Earth, Google Maps. Um, I'm a big fan of Gaia. I have the app on my cell phone. I will download the map layers before I get there. So I have them ready. Um, and that'll help me also kind of ground truth a little bit what that actual campsite looks like. Could I get my, my RV in there? Um, how, how, you know, twisty and windy is that road that gets me to the campground that I want to go to? How far is it from a trailhead or, or the lake? Um, so I really like to ground truth things uh, through digital mapping applications, whatever, you know, sort of you want to do. And then there are some third party, uh, you know, resources out there. The Dirt is a good one, D-Y-R-T, um, that has little campground reviews. You know, you may, the, the campground you're, you're looking at may be included in that. It may not be. Um, but I would also, you know, do that uh, and, and check those out as well. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's lots of social media out there um, that folks can take advantage of and, and, you know, do some research there. And I want to really clarify with our audience, at no, in no way did I, do I want to discourage anyone from camping on our national forest lands. I want you to. I, and that's why I have Greg on the show. I want you to do it. I want you to do it the right way. I want the preparation to be involved. I don't want anyone to get into a situation they're not prepared for. And I think if you're that type of person that likes those challenges and is willing to do all the things that Greg talked about, there are absolutely magical camping experiences waiting out there for you, particularly in an environment where there's overcrowding at a lot of national parks, there's overcrowding at a lot of popular private campgrounds. This is, in a, in a certain sense, it could be the next frontier for a lot of RV Atlas listeners in terms of finding those quiet back to nature experiences. But you need to do it the right way. And that's why I like to talk to Greg and Peters. Greg, before we go, uh, our podcast listeners can't see your hat. But <laughs> I want your hat bad, man. Tell, me, tell us, everyone, what hat you're wearing right now. Um, so my brother gave this to me for Christmas. He said he saw it and he just had to get it for me. Um, it has the iconic uh, sort of National Forest sign shape and the um, brown and, and sort of white uh text and, and colors and it says may the forest be with you um little play on uh on on uh, star wars so it kind of it, it tickled my my fancy for a couple of reasons i like star wars a lot and uh, obviously i'm a big fan of national forests and i'm so glad you you kind of closed with that comment I, I feel like i came in and um you know said oh you know you got to level up and, and you got to be prepared and those are true those things That's are true, true. But that's just going to make you have more fun. That you're going to have more success if you're leveled up and prepared. You can go out and, and probably have a fine and safe time without doing any of the preparation that I did. But I've made a lot of mistakes. I've gotten myself into some pickles before. I've learned a lot. I've been doing this now for 20 years. I'm, you know, 25 years. I've been camping on national forests in all sorts of different ways. And, and for the last 20 with an RV. Um, and 
I keep realizing, boy, if I had just taken another 20 minutes when I was connected to the internet and had just done a little bit more research, I'd have been able to really kind of maximize or, or have learned a little bit more or have not been caught without um, the right permit for, for that forest because that one needs a parking permit and the other ones that I've gone to don't. And, and that's all I really wanted to kind of uh, share, you know, at a high level, like you're just going to have more fun and you're going to have more success if you do a little bit more work. In fact, I think what happens with a lot of, whether you're a tent camper or an RV owner, I think what happens with a lot of people is once they get a taste of dispersed camping, once they get a taste of, of more remote camping in national forests, even if it is in a quote unquote campground, I think a lot of people have a hard time going back to, yeah. to private campgrounds and crowds and, uh, and higher, higher prices, you know, even I think a lot of people get hooked into it. And then with over 5,000 campgrounds, you could literally spend the rest of your life and barely tap into that, which is, you know, I used the word overwhelming before, but it's also exciting is this, this world of possibility. Unfortunately, 10 of those states that don't have national forest land or whatever that number is are all right around me, which right. drives me crazy. <laughs> I, you know, we've got Allegheny and Pennsylvania, but not, not too much. Um, but everything you said is so on point. Uh, I lo love speaking to someone who's an expert on their topic. And Greg, you are uh, an absolute leading expert on national forests in America. And uh, best of luck to you in Maine and hope to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Uh, really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it's a small world. If I don't know if you put my email up on your show notes, you're welcome to. If folks have a question, they're more than welcome to reach out to me. I'm, I'm always, I enjoy talking about this stuff with folks. So, um, you know, I want people to have a good time. I want people to have a safe time. And uh, I want people to really appreciate our national forests. And, and you got to get out there and, and enjoy them uh, in order to do that. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone, that was Greg M. Peters, author of Our National Forests, Stories from America's Most Important Public Lands, and you can buy that wherever books are sold. Greg, hope to have you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the RV Atlas. To find out more about the topics discussed on this show, head on over to thervatlas.com. And to join the friendliest group of RVers, head on over to the RV Atlas group on Facebook and make sure to join us on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at the RV Atlas. If you enjoy our show, please consider leaving us a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And we will see you at the campground. See you at the campground.